Welcome to the 14th episode of the Head Kick KO podcast, and today we are back from a long holiday break where there were no UFC fights. There were some smaller promotions, we had some one, we had some LFA, but for the majority of this winter break, we had no UFC fights, so I really didn't do much for podcasts over that period of time, but today we are back with a big episode we're going to be breaking down Max Holloway versus Kelvin Cater. The rest of that fight card on ABC. We're going to look to Wednesday's card of Chiesa versus Magny. We're going to look at Saturday's card of McGregor versus Poirier, UFT, UFC 257. And we're going to end by talking about some other big news like Habib's decision and Nate Diaz talking about moving back down to lightweight. So to start off, we had Max Holloway versus Calvin Cater in the main event of UFC on ABC. And this was an incredible performance by Max. I don't have to say that. Everyone already knows that. But to put in perspective how great this performance was, Max Holloway broke 14 records, I believe it was. It was either 13 or 14 records that were long-held records in the UFC. These included strikes landed, strikes attempted, strikes landed to the head, strikes landed to the body, um, no significant strikes differential. So Max Holloway broke many, many records with that performance. And along with that, it was the largest point differential on Verdict MMA for live scoring. He the final scorecard on Verdict MMA was 50 to 42.95, I believe, somewhere in that range. So Max also broke that record. So that right there, a 50 to 42 card, really shows just how dominant dominant Max was in that performance. And to go along with this, some of these records that he broke, like significant strike differential, that was also his record against Brian Ortega. So not only did he break records, broke them by a long margin, and they were previously held by himself. So there were there was a lot in this fight that I saw from Max that I really liked. First off, he had a perfect game plan for dealing with Calvin Cater's boxing. One of the biggest flaws in Calvin Cater's game is he doesn't throw much while moving back, so he allows himself to get pressured. Once you start throwing a couple a combo on Kelvin, his usual response is to shell up with a high block defense and move backwards. That is something that Max worked with perfectly. Every time he began a combo, he was going and digging to the body. He was attacking forward pressure on Kelvin and never allowed Kelvin to get in a rhythm. He Kelvin landed a couple of good punches each round, but he, there's not much you can do when Max is putting that much pressure on him. He never really let Calvin take any steps forward, which prevented Calvin from getting his offense going. Another thing I saw from Max that I really liked was that elbow that he was throwing. That elbow looks like it was doing a whole lot of da damage on Calvin. That's one of the biggest critiques of Max Holloway is his limited knockout power. Um, Max Holloway doesn't really have to rely on that in most fights, but it can be useful. Obviously, it's knockout power, but I think that could come into play against Volkanovski in that trilogy fight if that ever happens, which I'm sure it will. I think that elbow that he was throwing would come into play greatly. 
and overall, Max looks like he has improved. He looks like he has gotten faster. He looks like he has better cardio. In comparison to prior fights like Volkanovski, I think he looked faster in this fight than both the Vol- Volkanovski fights. In terms of cardio, he threw way more in this fight than he get, did against Ortega, which were Ortega and Cater were his two highest output fights. And in this, he had way more output, and he didn't even seem to get tired. At the end of the round, he would look a little tired, but then, you know, at the beginning of the next round, he would look like he had just started. So that was, those were two things I really liked from Max. And um, he also added that oblique kick to the lead leg of Calvin Cater. That's something I hope he can do against Volkanovski. If he can utilize that oblique kick and that elbow against Volkanovski, well, maybe adding in another tool or two, I think he can win that trilogy fight. We'll talk about that more in a minute. And in the cage, Cal- or excuse me, in the cage, Max looked incredible. It got to the point where in the fifth round, fourth round, it probably started in the early second round, but it really, it really heated up in the fourth and fifth rounds, where you could really tell that Max was just flowing, especially in that fifth round when he pointed to the commentary team, landed a right hand, and then proceeded to dodge a five-punch combo from Calvin Cater while looking at the commentary team. That is the flow state. Max Holloway entered the flow state, and once Max Holloway gets to the point where he's flowing, he can't be stopped. Calvin Cater allowed him to reach that flow state way too early in that fight. First first round, you could see it coming. You could see Max heating up, and then in the second round, he probably hit it. And second round, third round, he dominated. And then that fourth and fifth round, he took it to a whole nother level where it's almost like, it's almost like you couldn't imagine a thing that Cal- or that Max could do better. You couldn't imagine a thing where Kelvin could do to change the outcome of that fight once that fourth round rolled, o- rolled around. And a lot of people were calling for that fight to be stopped. I see where they're coming from with that based off the sig- sheer number of significant strikes that Max Holloway was able to land. But if you're Herb Dean in that situation... That's a tough fight to stop, in my opinion, based solely off the wording of the rules for when you should stop a fight. The ruling is, is when a fighter is no longer intelligently defending himself, the fight should be stopped. And in this situation, Kelvin was intelligently defending himself. He kept the hands up, and he was throwing back. In many situations, it looked like Herb Dean was going to step in, especially in that fourth round. And every time it got to the point where it looked like Herb Dean was going to step in, to stop the fight, Calvin would come back and throw more, and then Herb would back off, and he would still keep a close eye on it, but he never stopped that fight, because every time it looked like there was an opportunity to jump in and end it, Calvin would start throwing back, or he'd start showing some head movement with a high block. He was showing enough to make it hard for the referee to stop it based off the definition of the rule. Now, you could ask the question, should the, cor- should the corner have thrown in the towel? That's a little bit of a closer discussion, I think, because if you're the corner, you have to consider, do we still have a shot to win this fight in the fifth round? And if we no longer have the, the opportunity to win this fight in this last round, should we send him back out there? I guess, I guess Calvin Cater's team thought that he had the ability 
to uh, maybe land that one punch that could put Max out. And he does have the power to do that. Calvin Cater is one of the most powerful fighters in the 145-pound division. And his team probably had the confidence to send him back out there in the hopes that he could land a big shot and put Max away. And that that's really goes down to the discretion of the, of the team. And they lean towards sending him back out there. And that's, that's understandable. And I think, it, I think this decision ultimately was a fine decision because after the fight, Calvin was standing. He did immediately go to the hospital, but he was talking. And he, they interviewed him afterwards. He seemed coherent. And he really seemed like he was, he didn't seem like he was in a bad space mentally. I'm sure he was tired and everything, but he was talking. He was forming sentences. And Herb Dean watched that in the fourth round. And so when you have a fighter who is responding, who's forming intelligent sentences, it's hard to say he's taken so much damage that we need to pull him out of there. Because yes, he had a broken nose, but at the same time, he still had the ability to throw punches. He had the ability to form sentences. And really, he was still acting normal. He didn't show any behavior that makes you think this guy is in a bad space mentally. So that is what makes it tough for a team to throw in him the towel in that situation. And also on that significant strike number landed by Max, he landed 445. But I imagine at least half of those were to the body. So really... He, not all these were to the head. I know a large portion were, were anytime someone lands 445 significant strikes, 445 significant strikes, they're going to be to the head, but they weren't all to the head. There were a lot that went to the body, a good amount to the legs. So I think this, the amount of damage that Kelvin took um, was really distributed throughout his whole body and not just centered in the head. He was bleeding a lot because of that broken nose. So, but we've seen fights continue with broken noses before. So I don't think we were in anything where Calvin was in immediate danger. The question is, long term, how is that going to affect him? And we really can't tell after this short period of time. We're going to have to wait until he gets back in there to fight again. And that's when we'll be able to find the answer for that question. For Calvin, as when he returns, it'll probably be uh, he was suspended six months. He can have that um, overturned by a physician, but right now it's looking like six month a six month month medical suspension will be in place. He got a forty five day mandatory, so he's at least out forty five. It's sixty day mandatory. Forty five of those days being no contact. So we won't see him back in there for a long period of time. I imagine. There's a good chance he doesn't return in 2021, and that would be understandable after that. He takes time off to heal his body. I hope he does a similar thing that Ortega did after the Max fight in terms of Ortega took a long period of time off in his career, and he came back against the Korean Zombie looking great. And I hope Calvin Cater is able to do the same thing. I hope he stays out, stays healthy, while still improving himself as a fighter in a similar fashion to Brian Ortega. And when he's ready to return, um, then will be a good time to speculate about a next opponent. And for Max Holloway, it's looking like his next fight should be for a title. Now, the question is, which title? He's, this would obviously be his third fight against Volkanovski. Habib said he wanted someone to impress him in his decision that he made. Um, so there were some quick rumors about, or some quick uh, 
ideas that we should have Max versus Habib. Dana shut that down. He pretty much said he wants to see Max stay at 145, which I think is a smart decision. He looked too small for 155 when he did fight at 155. So I think staying at 145 it, for the long term or for, for a long period of time would be the smartest move for Max. And he didn't seem like he was too eager for a title shot. He seemed like he wanted to fight tough competition. But I imagine that the UFC is going to have him hold out and fight the winner of Ortega versus Volkanovski after that performance. And he 100% deserves that. As far as that goes, I think he has a very good shot at beating both of those guys. I know Alex Volkanovski is going to be the toughest fight for Max probably for the rest of his career simply because of how Alex Volkanovsky and his coaches and his team have found a way to fight against Max. That coaching staff has done a great job coming up with a game plan to limit Max's, limit Max's volume and not let him get in, in a rhythm. They do that with feints, leg kicks, several other things. So for that, I think Alex will always be the hardest fight for Max and that is a fight that I think could potentially happen a third time, a fourth time, a fifth time, especially if, you know, Max wins and Alex goes and beats a couple contenders in a similar fashion to Max. We could see these two guys fighting for a long time. These two guys could fight in the UFC more than more than any other two guys in UFC history. I think that and that would be understandable because I think it's clear that these two are the best 145 pounders in the UFC by a large margin. Brian Ortega looked great against the Korean Zombie. I still don't think he is as good as Max Holloway and Alex Volkanovski. Now, can he beat those guys? Yes. And that is based solely off his sheer ground ability. If he can get, to, if he can get a fight to the ground, he can submit anyone. And it looks like he has improved greatly on the feet. Uh, he showed that against the Korean Zombie. So it's going to be exciting to see Ortega in there against Volkanovski. They're going to make that fight. So that's going to be interesting, and we're going to have to see who that turns out. And I imagine Max will fight the winner of that fight. And then on this ABC card, we had a couple of other big, some big fights. I wouldn't say huge fights, but some big fights with some fun names. We had Santiago Ponzinibbio and Joaquin Buckley, who are two fan favorites, and with who we've wanted to see fight. Everyone loves watching Buckley fight. Ponzinibbio is someone who UFC fans have been awaiting the return of. And unfortunately, they both got KO'd. But two great performances by their opponents. Li Jingliang, he had a great showing against Ponzinibbio. I imagine he's going to be ranked soon. He might be ranked now after that performance. He might need one more quick win and then he'll get in the rankings. But I imagine he is knocking on the door of those rankings. And a really great uh, one-two, clips him with the hook to put Ponzinibbio away. Great stoppage on that fight, and a great performance by Li Jingliang. And there isn't really more much to say. I'd say that's a tough one for Santiago Ponzinibbio. Obviously, he, he has been off for two years, so it's tough. Anytime you see a guy out that, for that period of time with those types of medical issues that Santiago Ponzinibbio had, it's really tough seeing him go out there and get KO'd, but I imagine he'll be back. I imagine he had some jitters after everything he's been through medically to return to the octagon. I don't think this is the end for Santiago Ponzinibbio. 
I think he'll be back. We'll see more of him in the future. And hopefully we can see some more great performances because he is a very talented fighter in the UFC. And we had Alessio DiCirco, KO Joaquin Buckley with a head kick. And that was a big underdog fight there. And it wasn't like Alessio just landed that head kick and put Buckley out and it was a luck thing, but rather he looked to be the better fighter that whole fight. He was controlling range very well. Joaquin Buckley looked like he struggled to get inside. He was the shorter fighter. Joaquin Buckley is only 5'8", and DiCirco, I believe, was six foot. So Buckley really struggled to get inside. Buckley really struggles against a lot of these longer guys. His last loss prior to this was Kevin Holland, who's a long, rangy guy who caught him at the end of a 1-2. So both of Buckley's most recent losses has been to some of these longer, longer, more range-style fighters. And for Buckley, I think the best move for him would be moving down to 170 pounds. He weighed in for 185. I know against Jordan Wright, he was in the 175 range. 178, somewhere between 175 and 178. I did not see his weight against Alessio, but I think moving down would be the right move for him. There's just too, there's just too much of a height difference that I think he will struggle with for a long time if he stays at 185 pounds. I think he could obviously get better at dealing with, with range differences and getting inside on some of these taller opponents, more lengthy opponents. But I think moving down to 170 would really benefit him with some guys closer to his height. Obviously, Buckley is massive. He's jacked. But I I just don't see his frame really working at that 185-pound division. I mean, he's weighing in at 185. If he ever wants to be a champ of 185, look at some of these guys. You got Izzy. Robert Whitaker, Paula Costa, Jared Cannonier, Darren Till. These guys, their heights just don't compare to Joaquin Buckley. And I think that is going to cause him problems for the majority of his career. Israel Adesanya, a long, lengthy guy, where a lot of guys on the top-tier level struggle with his range, like uh, Romero. He stayed on the outside against Romero, picked him apart. He stayed on the outside against Paulo picked him apart until it came time where Paulo got inside. And then we saw some exchanges inside where Izzy shows great head movement. And that's really a story for another day. We've already talked about that. Everyone knows about that fight. But in this situation, it's going to be hard for Buckley to really break into that top tier. Even moving down, Uriah Hall, Kevin Holland, a lot of these guys are long-rangey guys who know Edmund Shabazian, who know how to utilize reach in a fashion that I think Buckley would struggle with. And I think moving down to 170 would really benefit his game a lot in allowing him to go up against some guys. He's still going to be giving up height, but some guys closer to his height. And uh, he doesn't have as much of a hurdle to get through. So that's what I for Alessio. He was coming off three losses, so I think just piling together some wins for Alessio would be great. We also saw um, Soriano versus Todorovic was a great fight on that main card. Um, in Dusko's last couple fights, he's looked great. So I was really surprised to see Soriano. I know he's a great fighter, but he looked very dominant in that fight. Landed several shots that set, set Dusko Todorovic down. So 
and he eventually got the finish. So very impressive performance by Soriano and a great way to start that main card. We had some other great fights on that card. We had Carlos Condit versus Matt Brown, which was a old school fight, which looked great. Matt Brown, I think, won the first round. Carlos Condit took the second two and um, for Condit. I was very impressed. He still looked swift on his feet. He was still throwing those traditional Carlos Condit combos that we really don't see many other fighters throw with switch kicks, head kicks. He kicks leg, then he kicks head, then he kicks body, then he goes back to the head. He's really active in that way. Good one-twos. Carlos Condit looked great, and he showed some heat in the post-fight interview. He commented about how he was more comfortable on the ground so it's great to see that because that's always been a weak point in Carlos's Condit, Carlos Condit's career is the groundwork. So seeing him more comfortable on the ground against a good ground and pound fighter like Matt Brown. I know Matt Brown is not solely a ground and pound fighter, but he does have some great ground and pound ability. So to see Carlos Condit, he had a great takedown in there as well. An amazing takedown, a sweep. So Carlos Condit, I was very impressed before this fight. I was saying that these guys should retire. That was my immediate opinion. But after I saw this fight, I thought both guys performed well and proved that they're still UFC caliber fighters. So I hope the UFC re-signs Carlos Condit and we can get some more of these fights against some of these styles of fighters, you know, like Condit, Brown, Robbie Lawler. Um, we've been rumored a Nick Diaz return. We've been rumored a Dan Hardy return. Get some of these guys matched up. Um, Diego Sanchez is looking to retire Get Diego Sanchez against one of these guys. I think there is some positives in having some older fighters like this where you can put them against each other and you can really just expect a good fight because they bring the best out of each other when you guys have like Con when you guys have guys like Condit and Brown going up against each other. So and they have produced exciting fights, especially that Condit versus Brown fight was a great fight. So I think we can see more fights like that in the immediate future. On the prelims, we also had prelims were a little a little underwhelming, but Carlos Felipe versus versus Justin Taffa was a great, great fight. We had two heavyweights who were willing to go in there and and throw some throw some massive shots at each other. And uh, Carlos Felipe got out of there with a decision win. I was leaning Justin Taffa on that decision. I see how they got it for Carlos Felipe. I think the majority of people had that going for Justin Taffa. So that's uh, that's something you don't like to see when the majority of the fans has, have it going one way, the judges have it going another. And that's, you know, that, that discussion could open up a whole nother can of worms in terms of how we should score this sport. We have adopted the scoring system after boxing. So um, we're going to save that decision for another day. That might be a good video idea in itself where I just sit down and give my opinion on the scoring system. I may do that in a week where there's limited news. But right now we have a lot of news running around. So I don't want to go on a 15-minute rant about the UFC scoring system because that could be a whole nother, a whole nother discussion of itself. Outside of this ABC card, we had some other big news. The biggest being Habib. We've been talking about how this Habib and Dana meeting is really going to shape the future of the lightweight division. And unfortunately, Dana White announced Habib's decision, and the decision was really more not really a decision. It was more like he hasn't made a decision was the decision. 
So basically what Dana said was that he talked to Habib and Habib said he was impressed by Charles Oliveira's performance against Tony Ferguson. And he said he's looking for one of these lightweights fighting on UFC 257 being Connor, Dustin, Michael Chandler, and Dan Hooker. He wants one of them to impress him and he could come back to fight one of them. Now that really leaves a question here is that gives us five guys. Um, after Saturday, that list of five will be cut down to three because Habib will not be fighting the loser of the co-main or main event. And that really really brings the question is what exactly impresses Habib? Would a, would a decision win for Connor impress Habib? Would a knockout win by um, Hooker or Michael Chandler against obviously the other, would that impress Habib? Would a, would a decision by Poirier would that impress Habib enough to return, or would we need to see Connor or Dustin go out there and knock the other one out early? I think that's a big question, and it's really impossible to know that answer without speaking to Habib on that question. So I think the fight that is going to be pushed for is that Connor fight. If Connor wins, I think he's going to get that fight because basically this all stems off a, a prediction that. If you think Connor's going to go out there and knock out Dustin in the first or second round, which I believe, then that is the type of performance that you would assume would impress Habib and get him to return. So I think we'll be seeing a Connor versus Habib fight. That's also the fight Dana wants. I don't really see a situation where Dan Hooker or Michael Chandler fight Habib. I, I just, in terms of who... Habib could fight to, to seal his legacy. Would it be Chandler or Hooker? Or Hooker? I think if if they can beat, if one of those guys can go out there and get a win in the co-main on Saturday, I think they would still need another win to prove that they should fight Habib. That that could be a good fight if uh, the winner of the co-main and main square off against each other or square off against Oliveira to really go and show they deserve a fight against Habib. So. I don't think we're going to know the true answer to, th to this decision for maybe months at this point. It's really hard to tell. We could need to see one. We will at least need to see Saturday. And then after that, we could need to see another round of lightweight matchups before Habib truly decides if he's done or not. And the one wild card in this situation has always been George St. Pierre. A lot of people, including myself, want to see George St. Pierre versus Habib. I think that is a fight that is big for both of their legacies. I think Habib versus GSP would largely determine who the greatest of all time is. The winner would pretty much ha put a, a all-time great on their resume, which no one really has in terms of deciding who the GOAT is. There's always talks about who's the GOAT, it usually comes down to Habib, GSP, and John Jones. If GSP or Habib could beat one of the other, I think that could really put a pin in the GOAT debate for now. We obviously have to see what John does, does for the rest of his career, but I think that's a large, a massive opportunity for both of those guys. But with that being said, Dana White has pretty much just shot down the fact that that he's pretty much just shot down the idea of that ever happening it looks like that fight will never happen as Dana was asked about it and he pretty much said no it's not going to happen 
there's always been a lot of roadblocks be preventing that fight from happening. And it looks like those roadblocks have really, really come into play to the point where it's not even worth it at this point in Habib's career. So I think that really makes, makes Habib's decision a lot easier, takes out some wild cards, and we can really figure out what's going on in this lightweight division hopefully soon. And as just as we thought some things were going to start getting solved, Nate, Dana announced that Nate Diaz was looking at moving back down to 155. In an interview with the Mac Life, the Mac Life reporter asked Dana if he would book Tony versus Nate or Tony Ferguson versus Nate Diaz. Dana's response was Tony is looking to move back down to 155, but it would not be against Tony and they're working on a fight right now. See, now this leaves a lot of questions because if it's not Tony, who? Because coming into this, Tony versus Nate Diaz was a fight that was talked about in a fight where Tony could move up to 175 and fight him. So a lot of people thought, oh, Nate's coming back down to 155. That's a, that's a fight that makes sense. Interestingly enough, if it's not Tony, that really leaves a restriction on names because if they're working on it right now, that that assumedly takes out the four lightweights fighting on UFC 257 on Saturday. So that would leave three big names right now, which would be Gaethje, Oliveira, and Felder. Now the rumors are that Gaethje and Oliveira were looking to fight each other, but I think that has died down here in the last couple of days as Oliveira said he wants to fight for a title. So it looks like Oliveira declined the Gaethje fight. So I think Gaethje versus Nate Diaz is the fight they're looking to make. It's a good fight for Nate if he wants to be reintroduced to that lightweight division. I think that's a very fun fight. I think the X factor in that fight would be Gaethje's leg kicks. I think that would be tough for Nate to deal with as he's decided he's made a conscious decision to not check leg kicks. I don't know why Nate made that decision, but he doesn't kick leg kicks in fights. Or he doesn't check leg kicks in fights. For whatever reason, Nate Diaz doesn't do it. So I think Gaethje's leg kicks would really be the difference. And I think Felder is the dark horse because every single guy in the top 10 is matched up besides Gaethje, Oliveira, and Felder. And if that Gaethje and Oliveira fight does come to fruition, that would leave Paul Felder and RDA as the two unbooked guys. And I think that based off Paul Felder's fighting style, I think the UFC would look to book that fight over RDA. So I don't think Paul Felder is out of this discussion yet. He seems like an outside wild card, but I wouldn't say he is out. Now, if the UFC wants to wait until after UFC 257, which at this timetable they will likely do, if they wait until after UFC 257, that opens up the four names that are fighting on Saturday, McGregor, Poirier, and then Hooker and Chandler. Now, I think all, I think three of these guys could fight Nate Diaz in the right situation. I don't think he fights Michael Chandler. That just doesn't seem like the right fight for Nate. Moving back down to 155 seems very counterintuitive for the UFC to pair him up with someone of Michael Chandler's style. So I don't think he gets that Nate Diaz, or I don't think Chandler gets that Nate Diaz fight. I think if Hooker goes out there and puts an impressive performance against Chandler, 
I think he would be the most likely to get that Nate Diaz fight. If you remember several months ago, Nate Diaz was really was really dogging on Gilbert Burns, and he was replaying the highlights of Dan Hooker knocking him out. I think that comes into play here. I think Nate Diaz respects that Dan Hooker did that, and that was how Ariel Ahwani interpreted that video. So I think that could be a fight we see if Hooker goes out there and puts on an impressive performance. And I also see this Poirier and Connor fight having a large impact on who Nate fights at 155. I think if Dustin is able to win this fight, I think in a weird way that leads to the Connor fight. So if Connor is on a losing streak and Nate is on a losing streak, that would be the perfect time to pull out that trilogy fight. Because in many circumstances, it's hard to sell a Conor McGregor fight when he's coming off a loss. After he lost to Habib, he had to take, I believe it was two years off. He took two years off before his return against Cowboy. And even then, it, it was sold as his return fight. It's hard to sell another return fight for Conor McGregor if he loses this one. And I think by pairing him with Nate Diaz, if he loses, that would really kind of put the UFC in a position where they are able to sell a Conor McGregor fight again in in a big way. If Poirier wins this fight, um, like I just said, that also, I mean, the UFC could try and book that fight. Poirier and Nate Diaz, I'm not really sure that that would be the way they would go. It's always an option. Those two guys have history. Nate and Poirier were supposed to fight. That fight eventually fell through. And I think that fight could happen again. That may be the way they turn if Poirier wins or loses, I guess. If Poirier loses, it would almost make more sense as Connor goes. If Connor wants to fight for the title and uh, Nate is able to get a win against Poirier or, or Gaethje, they would presumably be the top-ranked guys. And that could propel Nate Diaz to a title shot at 155 against McGregor. So I think that's the way they're going to go. Um out of those four names, I think Hooker and Connor could easily get that. Connor could get that fight almost whenever. That's the ace up the UFC sleeve is Connor versus Nate Part Three, and I think Hooker would be an interesting stylistic matchup. I think that would be an incredibly fun fight. Dan Hooker's last two fights have been fight of the nights, and for Poirier, he has history with Nate, so I think after. This after this Saturday, I think we're going to see a clear um, race to get that fight against Nate Diaz with guys like Gaethje, Hooker, Connor, Poirier, all really shoving their name in there, trying to get that Nate Diaz fight. Because when Nate Diaz fights, there's a lot of eyeballs on your fight, and that could be very beneficial for someone of the likes like Dan Hooker. And since we have since we took an extended break here there have been a lot of fights that have been booked that uh, really clear up the UFC schedule for the next couple months and really show us the direction the UFC is going we have on February 13th we will have UFC 258 which will be Usman versus Burns that that's a fight we've been waiting for um, that has been booked before booked several times, booked once in summer, once in December. Obviously, both fights fell through, one due to COVID. One really never got announced as to why, but we're finally seeing that fight, and hopefully we can see some answers as to what is going on 
in that 170-pound division. And then we will have UFC 259 on March 6th, which will have Jan Blachowicz versus Izzy fighting for the 205-pound title in the main. And then in the co-main, we'll have Nunez versus Megan Anderson for the 145-pound women's title, which is uh, a great fight in my opinion. I'll talk about that in a second. And then we have Jan versus Eljo for the 135-pound men's belt. So three title fights on March 6th. Jan versus Izzy. Izzy's trying to become double champ. Great storyline with that one. That fight is a fight I'm glad we're getting now because we're really going to be able to figure out if what is going on with Izzy in his future. Izzy has a lot of potential options being uh, staying, at, uh, staying at 205 after this fight defending, staying going back down to 185 defending, chasing a John Jones fight. So I think this fight against Jan could really answer some questions for Izzy, win or lose. And then in the 145-pound women's division, we have Amanda Nunes versus Megan Anderson. Another great fight. I think Megan Anderson is an active dog in this fight. She has some great striking, who's long, rangy, uses great kicks. And I think she has a great fight or a great chance to beat Amanda. We'll see the game plan Amanda enacts. I imagine it's going to be very grappling-based against Megan, as Megan is a phenomenal striker. So I think... Um, it's going to come down to whether Megan can stop a takedown, and if she can, we're going to. I think we're going to have a very close fight on the feet. And the third title fight is Piotr Jan versus Aljamain Sterling, another fight that should have happened by now, a long time ago, when Eljo beat Corey Sandhagen in 30 seconds or however many seconds. I believe it was 30. A quick rear naked choke uh, to get Corey out of there. I think that fight should have been immediately booked. Instead, the UFC waited around, booked it once. Uh, Piotr Jan pulled out, and I think uh, this could really... We've had a lot of talk of Piotr not being the true 135-pound champ champion. That's what TJ Dillashaw said. I believe Cody said something along those same lines. So I think after this fight, we're going to really see who the best 135-pounder in the wor world is because... A lot of people think it's Aljo. A lot of people think it's Piotr Jan. But we're going to find out. We are going to find out. And um, th that's going to be a great fight card on March 6th. I'm excited for that one. And we will certainly be talking about that more in the future. As there's a lot of important fights and a lot of fun fights looking on that card. Then March 16th, we have Leanne Edwards versus Hamzat Chimaev. Another fight. There's a clear trend here is another fight that was booked and eventually canceled. We're getting that one back March 13th. That should also provide some clarity on what is happening in the welterweight division. I think that's going to be a theme over the next couple months is figuring out what's going on in that welterweight division. And then on March 20th, we have Derek Brunson versus Kevin Holland. I'm excited to see Kevin Holland back. He's fighting his first ranked opponent. Jack Ray wasn't ranked at the time that they fought. So I'm excited to see Holland finally getting his ranked opponent. And I think that's going to be a fun fight, a very fun fight. It's always fun watching Kevin Holland fight. And Derek Brunson always uh, is, in, is in entertaining fights against good fighters. So we'll see how that one plays out. And then the final big announcement was UFC 260 will take 
place on March 27th. It will be headlined by Stipe versus Francis and with a co-main of Volkanovski versus Ortega. Both of those fights, huge implications. Obviously, have a title fight, but uh, John Jones and Max Holloway will be tuning in for those fights, I'm sure. Volk- er, Holloway is likely going to fight the winner of Volkanovski versus Ortega. And then I believe by March 27th, we will know what exactly is going on between Izzy and John Jones. So we will know for sure if John is going to heavyweight or if he's fighting Izzy. So I think on March 27th, we will figure out who John Jones's next opponent will be for sure if we don't already know. Those are all big fights that have finally been announced. We've been looking at the schedule with a lot of empty dates. It's nice to see those dates get filled and really give some clarity on what is going on with the UFC. So now we're going to move directly into um, Wednesday's card, which is Chiesa versus Magni. And we're going to talk about that for a minute. That fight card is a 9 a.m. start for the prelims. Prelims, I, I believe the prelims start at 9 a.m., but it's definitely an early morning card. So on this card, there's some fun fights. There's some nice names on this card. And the main event, obviously the biggest names, Neil Magny and Michael Chiesa, two big welterweights. And I'm very interested to see how this fight po- plays out. It's nice to see Neil Magny get in there against a a respected Michael Chiesa to see how he can perform. And I think the winner of this will slowly move up in those welterweight rankings as of right now, there's a lot of empty, there's a lot of, uh, I don't want to say empty space, but a lot of open space for movement in those welterweight rankings with Tyron Woodley at six and Damian Maya at seven. It's really a question of what's going on with Tyron Woodley and Damian Maya has one last fight left. So I think Michael Chiesa and Neil Magny, who are eight and nine, are fighting to really secure themselves in that top tier of that welterweight division and possibly get a couple wins and go on a title run. My prediction for that fight is I think it's going to be Neil Magny. I think this is two great grapplers, and I think it could. We could see them try and and, uh, wrestle each other to a decision, but I think a lot of times when you have two great grapplers, it usually takes place on the feet. See see Usman versus uh, Colby Covington for that. Two great grapplers who decided, hey, we're going to strike. We know we're great grapplers. We'll go out there and throw some hands. I think we see a similar thing, and I think uh, Neil Magny is just simply the better striker out of the two. So we'll see. Michael Chiesa has had a long time off, so who knows what improvements he has made. A lot of times we see guys go on layoffs like Michael Chiesa has in return in very dominant fashion. So I think both guys have a chance. I think this is a real close fight, but I lean Neil Magny. Some other fun fights. We have Monir Lezez versus Warley Alvarez. And Monier here is a very fun prospect. And I think he goes out there and I think he gets the win. He looked great in his last fight. And I think he continues with that dominance. We also have Roxanne Mataferi, who is back against Vivian Arjuno. And I'm very excited to see that fight. Um, it's nice to see Roxy back or Roxanne back in there. She has is looking. She has a chance to make a run for a title here in that women's division. It's going to be really interesting to see what happens with her here in the near future. She beat a 
big, big name in Macy Barber. So if she can go out there and have a similar performance to Macy Barber, taking out a up-and-comer, she could really prove that she is indeed one of the best and not just a gatekeeper and potentially move into a uh, into a big fight against one of these top tier women's uh, women's flyweight fights. And then the other couple big names on this card, we have Omari Akhmedov fighting Tom Brees. Omari Akhmedov is returning after his loss to Chris Weidman. I think this is going to be another really fun fight. It's nice to see Omari Akhmedov back in there. We also have Tyson Nam taking on Matt Schnell, which would, should be a fun 125-pound fight. And we have Leron Murphy, who is making his octagon return against Douglas Andrej. So very some very fun fights with some good um, up-and-comers, some prospects. We have also have Mason Jones is on this card, who is out of Cage Warriors, who looked great in Cage Warriors. He's finally making his UFC de- debut at welterweight against another great fighter, Mike Davis. We have Umar Nurmagomedov, who is Habib's cousin. He will be taking on Sergey Morozov. So we have a lot of uh, fun fights on this card with some a lot of young guys, a lot of prospects, a lot of guys who have bright futures in the UFC. So I'm very interested to see a lot of the fights on this card, and I think it's going to go down. It's probably one of the most slept-on cards this year, I think. There's a lot of fun fights scattered through the prelims. We don't have um, a big-name guy in the headline like uh, some of these other fight night cards we've had. Like just last week, we had Max Holloway versus Calvin Cater. This doesn't have big star potential in the headliner like that, but I think the prelims and the rest of the co-main is going to be one of the, probably the prelims might be one of the best prelims that we see for a fight night card all year. So I urge you to tune in and see all those fights. Francisco Figueredo is also on this card, who is Devison's brother. So there's going to be a lot of fun fights. Make sure you watch that card. And then moving on to Saturday's UFC 257. Obviously a huge fight, Conor McGregor versus Dustin Poirier. My prediction for this fight, I see Conor getting a first round KO, possibly a second round KO, but I lean towards the first round. But with that being said, a lot of times when you predict a first round KO for one fighter, it seems like you're disrespecting the other. By no means do I think Dustin Poirier doesn't have a chance to win this fight. I think if he can get outside of those fir- that first round and that second round, I think there is a great chance that he wins those, those last three rounds, could potentially stop Connor. And I'm going to be very interested to see if he can indeed make this a war like he said he wants to make it and if he can make it a war I am uh I'm there for it I'm I'm a-okay with that and I think that would be one of the the it'd probably go down as an all-time great fight if he can get in a war with Conor McGregor Dustin Poirier has the ability to get in wars he did it against Max Holloway he did it against um Dan Hooker so he's he's uh he's one of those guys who goes out there and gets in fight of the nights and gets in great and puts in great performances and gets close wins. So I'm going to be interested to see what he can do against Connor. 
I just think the difference in this is I think sometimes Dustin finds himself out of position. I think he was out of position several times against Hooker, but I think the difference being is that he's going to put himself out of position against Connor, and it really only takes Connor. One, you really only have to put yourself out of position once or twice against Connor to get finished. So I think that happens, and I think that happens. I don't. I don't see it happening in 60 seconds like Connor predicted, uh, but I do see it happening in the first round or the second round where uh, Dustin puts himself out of position and kind of connects with that precise KO power and ends up. I don't think he's going to put him out, put him out like he did in the first fight. And I don't think Connor's going to put him out cold like he did Aldo. But I do think that uh, we could see a finish similar to a Chad Mendez finish or a Cowboy Cerrone finish where he gets him up against the cage, gets their back up against the cage and uh, finds some openings, lands some precise shots, and puts them down. That's the type of finish I see here. TKO, first first round, possibly second round. In the co-main, we have Dan Hooker versus Michael Chandler. This is a very tough fight for me to pick. We have Dan Hooker, who is fighting out of um, Eugene Behrman's gym with Izzy, and Volkanovski also trains there on occasion. So, and we have Michael Chandler, who's a great fighter and a great American wrestler. And in this fight, I lean Dan Hooker because that that City Kickboxing Gym has done a great job of preparing their fighters to take on great wrestlers. And I think um, we've seen Izzy's progress in uh, defending takedowns. And I think we're going to see a similar thing from Dan Hooker. I think... And Michael Chandler, he is he is a great wrestler, but he's also no chump on the feet. So he can still win on the feet. But I think Dan, Dan Hooker is a, a better fighter on the feet than Michael Chandler. And I think if he can stop takedowns, he can win. And that's going to be the big question is can he stop takedowns? I think he is. I think he can. I think he can stop Michael Chandler takedowns. And uh, uh, I think if he does get taken down, I think he will be very active in returning to his feet. That's something we see out of Izzy. If you see that Izzy, Izzy Romero, Romero gets a takedown late in the round. And the second Izzy hits the mat, he's back on his feet. I think that is something that City Kickboxing has done great. It's teaching their guys the second um, you hit the mat, the, the second you're taken down is the second you try and get up. And that seems simple, but um, that is something where a lot of guys, a lot of guys don't do that. Um, I wrestled in high school, and that's one of the biggest things you're taught when you get taken down right back up. The second you hit the mat is the best second to try and get up off the mat. The longer you stay there, the harder it's going to be to get up. And I think that is something City Kickboxing has done to a perfection. And the second they hit the mat, they're, they, they're either up or they're scrambling or they're doing something to try and get off the mat. And then when they're not on the mat, they have great striking, great technique. And I think that is where Dan Hooker wins. I think if he gets taken out down, First off, if I think he can defend the takedown, and if he does happen to get taken down, I think he can get back up. I don't think Michael Chandler can hold him there, even though he has great wrestling. And that's not a diss on Michael Chandler. I see it as a compliment to Dan Hooker because I think he has great, great wrestling defense. And I see him being the the better striker out of the two. 
So I think Dan Hooker is able to get this done. Um, probably goes to a decision, a very close decision, I'd say. And uh, especially since it's only three rounds. And Dan Hooker, especially against Poirier, looked great the first three rounds. Uh, Dan Hooker started to slow down in those fourth and fifth rounds. And I think Dan Hooker could put a great pace on Michael Chandler in those three rounds. So I'd lean Dan Hooker in this fight, but another one that is very close. But if you make me pick, I'm going Dan Hooker by uh, probably unanimous decision. Another fun fight, Jessica I joined Calderwood. A very, a very important fight for this flyweight division, women's flyweight. In, in this division, I think uh, we're really in contender season. Obviously, there's Jessica Andrade, who will be taking on Valentina Shevchenko next, more than likely. If uh, Valentino defends that 125-pound belt, it will be against Andrade. If she moves up to 135, it'll be obviously against, she'll be um, taking on Nunes for the belt. But as of right now, I think the first fight we see is probably her defending 125 pounds versus Andrade. And then after that fight, it really opens up. So I think uh, Jessica I and Joanne Calderwood both have a chance to go out there, put in a professor, pro, um, impressive performance, and really, uh, and then move on and take some of those a take on a top tier 125 pounder to prove they deserve a title shot. And then also goes for Roxanne Mataferi and Vivian Arjuno. They also have a very similar opportunity on Wednesday. And then um, we also have Marina Rodriguez versus Amanda Hibas, which is another great fight in in these uh, in the female divisions. I think that is two of the better prospects that the UFC has in, in the women's 115-pound division, Marina Rodriguez and Amanda Hibas. We also have Mackenzie Dern, who's another great prospect in that division. So I'm really excited to see this Rodriguez and Hibas fight. I think both of them have bright futures, but the winner just really sets himself apart as the top-tier prospect and the next up-and-comer in this 115-pound women's division. Also on this card, we have Khalil Roundtree, Juliana Pena, Sarah McMahon, Brad Tavares. So this card is also filled with a lot of fun fights and a lot of good fighters on these prelims. So that is going to be my predictions for some of the bigger fights. I didn't want to, I'm not going to sit here and give predictions for every single fight. If you want to see my predictions for every single fight, I am on Tapology, so you can go on Tapology and uh, search up the Headkick KO podcast, and you can see my picks on Tapology. I'm also on Verdict MMA, so if you want to see picks, you can see them on Tapology or Verdict MMA. So I'm not going to break down every single fight, rather just the more important ones like the Connor and Poirier's and the Hooker and Chandler type fights. So I'm very excited for these next two cards, um, Kiesa and Magni and UFC 257. We will be back next week with another episode breaking down that Connor and Poirier fight as well as the Magni and Kiesa fights. So both those cards will have, be broken down in one episode. And in that episode, I will also uh, talk about any new progress we have in terms of 
Habib or Nate fights um, and who I think they will fight. Because I think after Saturday, we will see a lot of answers and there will be a lot of new opinions and options based off the performances we see on Saturday. So for that, I am out with this episode. And don't forget to tune in next week where we will be talking some of these subjects like Habib and Nate Diaz. You won't want to miss it. Thank you very much.